Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 53. Um, really quickly before I do, I brought a sign-up sheet today. Uh, we just sent out our, our most recent uh, uh, family newsletter about what's been going on with our work with, with Acts. If you don't if you don't know me, my name is Pete Williamson. I was a pastor up in Bellingham for several years. I uh, came into the PCA back in 2018, um, and now I'm serving out of bounds with a discipleship ministry in Eastern Washington called Great Commandments Ministries. We, we mostly serve young people, post-high school age young people, uh, through two four-month uh, residential discipleship programs um, that we call Essentials and Ascent. Um, I direct the Ascent program this spring and help with some other stuff in the rest of the year, um, but we didn't have Ascent this spring for lack of, of uh, enough signups, enough students signing up. So we've been working on some other things which we detail in the newsletter. So that's the only, so if you want to learn more, you can sign up for our newsletter list or tag me afterwards. Um, but it's, a great, it's great to see how God's blessing it. We're moving into a new area of building a coffee shop in the little town of Natchez that we hope will both be a blessing to the community uh, but also a place for us to take students who've gone through the program and then teach them the ins and outs of running a, a Christian business, using it as an opportunity both to, to encourage ministries to come and, and connect with people in the community, but also just for themselves to learn what, what's it look like to, to work as a Christian employee. How do, you, how do you use this in ways that are constructive to gospel conversations and beyond that? And so we're really excited about that. It's it's another one of those works that it's amazing to see how God's blessed it. We started talking about this two years ago as in a completely different place than what we expected and so much better. Um, and so it's been, it's been fun to see that. And then I'm going to be heading off in a month's time to Romania to teach at our, we have, a, we're, we have a, an international ministry in Yash in eastern Romania uh, that's geared towards international students who go through the medical school in, in that town. So we have students from all over the world that come through for five, six years. Wonderful opportunity for outreach to the international community in all sorts of ways. And so they have a, a, a camp each year following the Orthodox Easter uh, schedule. So I'll be teaching during that week and I'm gonna go see William in Paris for a few days. So, you know, it's not always easy being a missionary. So we, we do what we can. So appreciate your prayers for that. Um, but yeah, three, three days in Paris won't be too awful. So anyways, but yeah, if you want to find out more, love to, love to um, you know, connect you with our newsletter. Also, we are in the middle of recruiting students for our fall program, which begins in late August. So if you know of any young people, high school graduates, you know, on up into, you know, mid, late 20s, really, but we'll take even older than that. If anybody's interested in, in a discipleship program, love to talk with you as well. And you, there's a sign-up thing there as well for that. So enough of that. Um, Mark chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 53. If you would stand as we read from God's word this morning. This is the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help as we, we consider this passage this morning. I ask for your help in, in preaching. Give me clarity, Lord. Help me to speak your words, to, to point your people to the truth. And we trust you, Lord, through your spirit to build up your people, uh, to teach them about who you are and what it means to follow you. We, we are your willing servants, Lord. Here we are. Please teach us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you have any heroes. Uh, it seems like we're in an age where maybe heroes mean something different than it used to be. Heroes, heroes mean someone who simply achieved a lot, but I, I think in, in an, maybe the more usual understanding of heroes is someone who stands as an example, as someone we want to be like, someone who exhibits a certain kind of character. Um, I've been here, I think, with you enough times, you know that this, is, this idea of this concept of character has been a really important one to me. I'm still trying to understand it because I think it's, it's so central to what I see in Scripture, but we don't seem to do a very good job of talking about it. Um, but I think it's, it's a topic that's worthy of our reflection and, and, and uh, paying attention to anytime we see it come up. So I, I want to share with you a story not from the Bible, but, but from history, about George Washington. George Washington is just, I don't know, if anybody, has anybody read anything about George Washington? I mean, you know he was the first president. <laughs> know that much. He is a remarkable character. In fact, he is so remarkable, he, he has almost a mythical status. Not, not quite like uh, the leader of North Korea, the, the founder of the North Korean state, I think on his first visit to his own golf course, hit a hole in one off the first tee, and he just went into glory from them, there on. But, but he's, he was such a unique character, and part of what made him unique, there's a, there's a great book by uh, Gordon Wood called Revolutionary Characters. And one of the things that he pulls out of there is that he was, he was very conscious of who he was as the leader of the American people at a time when they needed someone to sort of be an, an access point. Not a king, but, but the revolution really stood on shaky grounds. It really could have collapsed very easily, not because of the British, but because America. We are just an unruly people. Um, and he was very conscious of the role that he played as president, and he, he worked very hard from a very early age to cultivate character. And he did in such a way, very serious, very focused, but in a way that made him seem to outsiders as sort of aloof and detached. But he understood, he understood he was not just living for himself, he was living for a nation. 
and he shaped his way that way. But there's also something that goes back to just seeming the kind of guy that he was, and, and this is what this story is about. So back in 1753, this is during the French Indian Wars, so the American territory at that time was largely divided, especially up in the Northeast, between British and French territories, and battle between the two of them. Uh, there was a need uh, in this time for a message to be delivered to the commander of the French army, because the French army had been building forts on British territory. The British were not going to stand for that, and so this letter was a withdraw or be destroyed kind of message, but they had no one to deliver it. When in steps, 21-year-old George Washington, had no military experience at this time, had no diplomatic experience at this time, did not even speak French, but, but took it and was willing to lead a team on a, on a, I forget how many hundreds of miles horseback ride from Virginia to, I think it was in the Ohio Territory at the time, to deliver this message. Um, pretty, pretty challenging message to give, on, 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 not to mention. He takes a small team, as I said, including a translator, but they're also accompanied by a number of Native Americans. Now, Native Americans at, at this time did not choose sides. They, they, were, they were friends of convenience, and I think probably in a way that they maybe saw a strategy of playing one side off against another. So, so allies was kind of a, a loose term as far as dealing with the Native Americans. So they, they take this group and go to the French, and things go quickly south. The French reject the letter. I won't even attempt a bad French accent. They reject the letter. The Native Americans are bribed to switch sides and turn against them. And George Washington and the others are then forced to retreat all the way back. So they're under fire. They, they are surviving for their own lives in the middle of winter on horseback. And they have to get this message back to their headquarters that, that the, the letter was not rejected. So there's big, big implications here. Normally in the wintertime, the weather would get cold enough that the rivers would freeze up, and so it would be fairly easy to get across the rivers on horseback. But this was not one of those winters. The river was running pretty high and, and pretty strongly, and, and really if they attempted it, they would have all drowned. So what do you do? You have the river in front of you, you have the enemy behind you, you have to get home. How do you handle that situation? Here's a, here's a moment to reflect. What, what do you do when everything is falling apart, when nothing is going right, when chaos is around you and death is on the line? This is what Washington's biographer said. And, and keep in mind, this, this biographer was a descendant of George Washington, so adjust accordingly. But he writes this, Yet George, who would be calm even when the bullets were whistling around him in battle, he was shortly to declare that he found the sound charming. Remained temperate. He coolly assessed the situation rather than letting his emotions get the better of him. A lesser man might have panicked, might have scrambled back to try to rejoin his party. George's presence of mind, his ability to retain a cool head in a heated circumstance, to restrain his emotions, continued to stand him in good stead. In the midst of that, they built a raft. In the midst of all that threat and danger, that's not a quick task either, but he kept his cool, led the team, and they were able to get back through building this raft. And I share that story because it's just, it's just one of so many different examples. I think I've shared the story before of Desmond Doss and the work he did in the midst of conflict, saving all, rescuing all these different people from danger. We ought to celebrate those stories because that's not just a good thing that happens, but there's a character there in the midst of need. And I think a, a window of hope that, that 
each time we hear it, there's a suggestion of if they can do it, that it's not impossible. That it, the chaos does not necessarily have to overwhelm. That there is a way, and here's someone who's showing us a way to handle this, that, that they're able to overcome what happens. Um, I think we need that a lot. I mean, we, we are by definition, as Christians, ones who expect to be persecuted. One, one who, ones who are subject to the chaos of a fallen world. What do we do? And, and it strikes me that, that in this season where we have had a few different significant events, we've had COVID, remember that? And we, we've had the political stuff of the last, well, I, I won't count the years because it really depends on where you stand. Um, we've faced chaos. And, and the cultural swing has been towards fighting towards a stance of aggression. But, but we have in this passage that we're looking at a different response from Jesus that we don't hear much about. In fact, it, it makes me wonder, we don't really hear much in terms of worship music about the silence of Jesus in the face of chaos, in the face of threats. We have onward Christian soldiers. We've got the good martial stuff, and I'm nothing wrong with that, and that has its place. But... but can you name me a song that talks about the silence of Jesus before his enemies? Something to be written there. But there's a similar, it's the thing that makes someone like a George Washington admirable. He does something different than what we would expect. He does something different than what I would do, and it's better. Lives were saved. It was for a greater good. He was willing to take that risk for a greater good, and we admire that. And I I would say, I don't want to give away too much of, of what I want to talk about in this passage, but one of the things that I was reflecting on this is that we, we often, I think, admire Jesus just at the level of he's the son of God, and that's what we ought to do, but we don't reflect on who he was in a way that also draws forth our admiration. He was admirable not just as Jesus. He was admirable as a man in times like this. And so I, I want to... to focus in particularly on Jesus' response in the middle of this section. Um, reflect on what this means. So let, let me set this up. This is, a, this is a chaotic time that we're jumping right into the middle of, a chaotic night. Jesus has just been arrested. Uh, this, this is in the midst of a week that did not start out badly. This is, this is the week that began with Palm Sunday with the triumphal entry, entry and everything seemed to be breaking right at last. If you, were, if you were starting to see Jesus or if you were seeing Jesus as the Messiah in any way, this was the domino that you were waiting to fall. It's happening. It's on. Go back. I encourage you to read the triumphal entry uh, account again. But he is, he is enacting the picture of, of the Messiah of Israel entering the city of David as king. And all of it very intentional, all of it very deliberate. And the people are picking up on it. They're, they're reading the triumphal entry psalms. They're shouting them. They're singing them to the extent that the whole city is shaken. And there's this division between those who are saying, what on earth is going on? And the others are saying, he's here. And then he goes from the entry into the city, into the temple, and says, time to clean house. My house shall be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. 
He's finally doing it. And depending on whose side, this is either great news or this is terrifying. It's great news like finally, it's happening, and nobody's standing in his way. All the opponents that we've faced all along, they're melting. They can't stand before him. Now on the other side, it's like, what on earth do we do? How do we stop this? We are faced with a, tide, a tidal wave that we are not able to stop. Jesus is arrested. Imagine the grinding of gears emotionally on that Thursday night. How did we get here? What happened? What went wrong? Everything's been blown apart. Not only is he being arrested, but he's been betrayed by one of his own, Judas. Now, I mean, it's easy to sort of sneer that. It would be easy for us to kind of sneer that and say, well, we saw this coming all along. Yeah, but we're reading the, the you know, looking backward accounts of Judas. When you, when you read the text through, they seem completely oblivious to what Judas, Judas was up to. He may have stood apart a little bit, but they didn't expect this from him. He was not identifiable as a betrayer. One of our own hands him over, and now he's in the custody of a large crowd, which John describes in his gospel as a collection of Roman soldiers and Jewish officers. Where is this going? Mark tells us then that he's taken to the home of the high priest. This, for the disciples, for the followers of Jesus, this would probably be the most terrifying place in the whole city. It's the bad guy base. And it's packed. The whole religious establishment, the, the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the, the experts of the law are all there and a hearing begins. And it happens, it, it seems to happen fairly close, shortly after his arrest and judging from little details like the fact that Peter went to a fire to warm himself up, this is probably happening towards the evening. They didn't wait till the next day. You get the sense that there's a need for expediency and secrecy. We need to get this done. There's a desperation here. Things are getting out of hand and we have to act quickly. And you see that also in what happens next is they, they bring forward a parade of witnesses with all kinds of accusations, trying to come up with something that they could pin on him, something that would allow him to have him put to death. The outcome of this was never in doubt. Jesus was not coming out not guilty. The outcome was certain. They were not going to leave until they got something. The problem was, and this is, a, this is an interesting detail in the midst of all this, the problem was they couldn't find anyone whose stories agreed with anybody else's, which suggests that there was some sort of a Presbyterian procedure here. Everything done in decency and order. It, it almost seems like, I mean, it sounds like the way it sets up at first, like there's this open room where everybody's kind of talking at once, but it sounds like if they're not getting stories to agree, that they're interviewing people one at a time. Which is strange, because they had to know they were doing something wrong here. They had to know they were perverting justice, and yet there was a scrupulosity to do things the right way, to do things according to the law, to be by the book. So how... How did we get here? How, how do we get to this point where this sort of thing is happening? Religious leadership had been after Jesus for quite a while now. Mark's gospel goes all the way back to chapter 3, after Jesus healed a man's hand on the Sabbath. Um, after that happen, happens, Mark says that the Pharisees met with a group called the Herodians to try to find some way to destroy Jesus. 
So he already set himself up as a threat, as a problem that they, that they need to deal with in the strongest ways. Why is the question. Well, in his teaching, he rejected what they taught. He broke the Sabbath repeatedly, maybe even with glee, some might say. He ate with sinners. You're not supposed to do that. The law says, and yet he ate with sinners, gleefully, abundantly. He even presumed to forgive sin, something which only God could do. He regularly challenged the leadership of the Pharisees and scribes. And most significantly, I think by this point, he had become tremendously popular with the people. And no wonder. He, not just the signs and wonders, that was enough alone, but, but those moments where the gospel writers talk about the, the crowds saying, we have never heard anyone teach like this with authority. He connected in a way that the priests and the scribes did not. He got them. He he knew how to capture their hearts. They were on board with him and, and were this growing number to the extent that how do you stop him? We try to debate him and he always wins. He doesn't just win his point. He makes us look stupid. He tells parables about us. And and at this point, if we try to make a move, the people are going to turn against us. We've got a real problem here. They had to do something. There's, There's, within that need to do something, there's a couple more considerations. Not just the fact that he presents a spiritual threat. Worst case scenario, he is a false prophet who would lead the people away from God. thus dooming the whole people. We've seen this script before. We don't want to go back there. We are on the road towards being a redeemed people, being a holy people, a righteous remnant, so that God will forgive us and take these Romans away. We don't want to go backwards. We are trying to be faithful in the presence of God. God. But there's also a more practical political risk here. If, If they made a move, or if he was allowed to continue on, the threat of political unrest would be significant enough, very likely, to bring the Romans in. Romans didn't like revolutions. That kind of ruined the empire. And they had a very efficient way of dealing with revolutions. They would come in and kill everybody. Problem solved. We don't want that. We don't want either of those things. We, we want things to continue on the way they are and continue on on the, prog- on the program that we are working on. So we've got to do something about him. But what do we do? He had to come up with a charge that the people would accept. The people are all for him. How do you persuade them that he deserves what we're trying to pin on him? But secondly, they had to come up with something that would get the Romans to act. If you read, if you read the trial accounts with Pilate, the Jews had no authority to execute anyone. Such was the rule of Rome over Israel. You couldn't just do that. Only the Roman government could. That's why you you have this interaction with with Pilate and the religious leaders where he doesn't find Jesus guilty of anything. And they they bring in, well, if you forgive him or you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar. We'll go over your head, Pilate, to try and force his hand. 
which he caved into. But he needed to be convinced as well because when he did his examination, he found nothing. And so that's why we're here. And they're not getting anywhere. It's just this chaotic mess in a Presbyterian framework. When finally you get the sense of sort of this sort of exasperation, the high priest stands up. Don't you have anything to say about this? Listen to what they're saying. And it's at that point we're aware that Jesus hasn't said anything. He's been silent. He hasn't defended himself. He hasn't got angry. He hasn't corrected anybody. No well actuallys. He didn't add to the chaos in any way. He remained quiet. So that then the high priest plays, I think, his, his final card. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? He's hinted about this all along the way. He's acted in ways that, that make this fairly obvious, but I want to hear it from you. I am. And, and it's not, he, the commentators say that just the acknowledgement of that is not enough, but what he says next, I am, and you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This, is, this elicits the charge of blasphemy, which is the, the taking of a human and putting them anywhere in close proximity to God. God is holy. There is nothing not holy that deserves or ought to be in his presence at all to suggest otherwise is wrong of the first order. Who do you think you are, sin, that you can claim to be in God's presence, to sit at his right hand? You're a man. You're a human. How dare you? We, we don't have that concept of holy. You see it still in Jewish tradition where... Um, the name God, if it's written out, if you've ever seen in, in Jewish writing that, that the O in the middle will be underlined and left silent. Because you, you don't write it, you don't even say it. What we say so easily. And I, I think for good reasons. But that understanding of the holiness of God and, and seeing this Jesus as a mere man, who do you think you are to claim to even sit in God's presence? You heard him. They have their witnesses. They have their charge. They have their witnesses. The room erupts. And the death sentence is quickly pronounced, and now he can be handed over to the Romans. Two things that stand out in this. Um, one is, is the tragic behavior of the Jewish leadership. Uh, I don't know if you, you read it this way, but I think this is so important to see. Out of all Israel, out of all Israel, the ones who accused him were the ones who had most devoted their lives to preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. They'd given their lives to it, quite literally. They'd spent most of their lives in study and sacrifice. They gave and they fasted. They, they lived lives that were meant to be models of this is what it looks like to be a righteous person before God. Not in the way that sometimes we, we make it where they are they're swelled up and full of themselves, but people who have done everything they can, to, who have been exact in their obedience to the law that they might be found faithful before him at great cost, with, with great devotion, they couldn't recognize him when he came. 
they believed, and the problem was that they believed that when the Messiah came, he would recognize them, and he didn't. Who are you? There, there are people in this crowd, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, who are going to enter God's kingdom before you. Your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. You better be careful, Pharisees, because there are some here that will enter and you will be left out. Who do you think you are? Do you know what it cost me to get here? Do you know what I've lived my whole life preparing for? Do you, do you know what the one thing that has focused my life has been? To prepare myself for the Messiah of God. To do what we have failed to do throughout all history. To be on the right side of things. Who are you? And so they reject him. They, they refused to recognize him. They couldn't recognize him. They became his enemies. And there, there's something there that strikes me too, that, that this inability to recognize him has some notes of the hardening work of God that we find in, say, the story of Pharaoh. There's a certain point where his, who is this God that I should fear him, is, is who is this Jesus that we should fear him? It's tragic. It's tragic. And, and the line that John says, particularly in the King James Version, is just so poignant of a, a comment. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. There's a question that that raises for, for those of us who likewise love God, want to serve God, want, want to live righteous lives before him. Is it possible for us to be so hardened? Is it possible for us to construct a Christianity that is built around a Christ that is utterly unrecognizable by Jesus himself with the best of intentions? That's why we read the word, is to have those visions, those pictures challenged, questioned, to, to measure ourselves, to help us see clearly. Because in the name of Jesus, in the name of God, we're, we're capable of the same kind of madness that we find in the scriptures. For example, one that, that perpetually sticks in my mind is in Luke where we have the, another person, I think it's a woman with a, with a bad back who's not able to stand up, goes into the temple on the Sabbath day to be healed. She's in agony. And, and the chief priest there says, there are six days in which a person can be healed here. Not today. He's right. He's right. And he's wrong. And Jesus exposed that immediately. If your donkey, if your ox falls into a ditch on the Sabbath, do you wait until the next day to do it so that you don't work? Of course not. You have this, what's it called? Compassion for your animal. And your zeal for the law and your zeal for the Lord and your zeal to be righteous keeps you from being compassionate about those who are suffering. So when I break the Sabbath, I'm showing you that compassion does not rest. Even on the Sabbath. The law sets that up. The law sets the table for compassion, not withholds it. 
Keep that in mind when we come to the Lord's table later, too, by the way. But it's tragic that they can't see that. And it's tragic for us if we fail to see that. And then, and then there's Jesus' response. Why, why didn't he say anything? Why didn't he fight? He was entirely in the right in this situation. He, he was entirely innocent. And not only was he innocent in any, any of their charges, he was the Messiah. He is God. And he did nothing to stop it. He, he endured everything that threw at him. There, there was at no point any move to correct, any, any move to threaten, any move at any point to say, I'm done playing this game. Do you know who I am? And the room just goes still. He could have undone that whole room in a moment. And he silently does nothing. I wonder how many of us today would think he was weak for doing so. Be a man, Jesus. Stand up for yourself. It's pathetic. Or is that a strength we don't understand? In fact, out of the remaining times when he does say something, at least once was a prayer on their behalf to his father to forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. Have mercy. How was he able to do this? This is, this is the important question here. Because I, I, I fear that we stick with the Sunday school answer. He did this because he was Jesus which is true, but that does not help us because none of us are Jesus. So, so what can we understand about Jesus that enabled him to do so? And, and the scripture teaches us in, in a variety of ways. It doesn't, list us at, it doesn't list it out helpfully in one section. And when we get to heaven, we can talk about how the scripture writers organize their material, been helpful to have a little more Q&A section in the back that we can waste less time. But how was he able to do this? I, I think there's four things that we can say. One, he knew who he was. He knew exactly who he was. He knew he was the Son of God. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew what that meant. He, he was not moved by false accusations. When we are uncertain about ourselves, we're, we're easily overwhelmed, aren't we? When we forget who we are, in, in whatever context that means. You know, if, you're, if you have... If you become, you know, if you remember back to high school when you were accepted onto a team and someone said, you don't deserve to be on that team. Well, I am, says coach. I know who I am. I belong here. He knew who he was. He knew his innocence and remained firm. Second, he knew who they were. He knew, and this is where Paul is helpful, he knew that they were not the real enemy. He knew they were lost. He knew they were confused. He knew they were blinded. He knew that was not the real source of all this. And so he was able to have compassion on the ones who wanted him dead. He showed mercy to those who mocked him. He withheld his hand when they spit on him and beat him in the face and body or pierced him. He remained composed. Third, he knew the plan. He knew his purpose. He knew that this was the path that he was meant to walk. 
And, and he didn't just know that, he accepted that. That's what Gethsemane was about. If it's your will, take this cup from me. Yet not your will, not my will, but yours be done. He accepted the role that he would be the lamb who was slain. And this is the path I walk. I must do this. This is right for righteousness sake. And so he endured. And then lastly, and I I think most importantly, he entrusted himself to the Father. And this is, when you think about this, this is where, think about how to explain this makes you realize how indescribable the relationship between the Son and the Father are for our little minds. Jesus is fully God, amen? He is God, and, and he is also the Son and not the Father and not the Spirit, and, and vice versa is all the way around. And yet, however we put that together, which for me is usually mathematical, somehow he entrusted himself and his cause to the Father in a way I don't even know how to explain to you and maintain that integrity. He just did. He, he did in a way that he did in terms that we can understand. God knows my case. God knows my cause. God knows me. God is for me. God will not leave me defenseless. God will vindicate me at the end. I do not have to fight for myself. God will fight for me. So I, I said all that prelude with, with, about the Trinity, just so you know where I stand Trinitarianly, and my language is kind of a, all over the place. I'm, you know, anyways. But, but he entrusted himself to the Father. So he was not, he did not need to say anything on his own case. He could be quiet. He could endure. He could take all that stuff. He could be the calm in the midst of the chaos. Righteous or otherwise. And knowing these things enabled him to stay calm, to maintain his poise, to keep his focus all in the face of his enemies, all the way on the, to the cross, all the way to carry out the redemptive purpose of God. Admirable. Admirable character. Worthy of our worship. That he said nothing when we would have said everything. When he did nothing when we would want to fight back. Admirable. And I want to skip over now to another passage. If you want to turn here with me, most significantly, an example for us to follow. First Peter 2, verse 18. So I tricked you. I turned this into a be like Jesus sermon. Just like that. But I have good company. 2.18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. This is a grace from God. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we can't distance ourselves from the actions of Jesus here and say, well, that's Jesus doing what he needed to do. Peter says, no, that's how we are to respond. And it's not just a matter of doing, it's a matter of taking on the same mindset. Well, beat my particular drum that Romans 12 is far more important to us than we realize that the need for our minds to be transformed is not just simply a change of minds about the moral character of a particular action, but of thinking, of understanding, first of all, that our thinking is largely worldly because that's where we come from. And that, that perspective is wholly incomplete and often wrong. We are, we are compelled to go to Scripture to have our minds reshaped according to what, how God understands and sees things in a world that is shaped by a God who really exists and has really done the things that he's done. And Jesus who really exists and has done the things that he's done. And the Spirit who exists in the world who has done the things that he's really done. And that's a constant work if you think about what he's saying there. We need to think. We need to have a different perspective. So we see in this, I mean, just in applying this, the world really then is no different than from now. The world we still live in, the world we live in is still gripped by the same kind of chaos of that night. Jesus is rejected, hated by people who do not fully understand what they are doing. And as disciples, we are told to expect the same. It won't be right. It won't be fair. It won't be just. We don't deserve this. We may oftentimes have a legitimate claim to innocence, to not deserving it, fallen people though we are. And yet, this is a grace from God. This is our calling as his people. So in order to do so, we need to have the same kinds of assurances, the same kind of mindset that he did. First, that we understand who we are. Do you know who you are? And I'm, I mean that question seriously because I know many Christians who know what the right answer is but don't inside. We, don't, we haven't planted on what God has said. We are, we are still prone to the feelings of the moment. So when I ask you, do you know who you are? I'm not asking you, how, how, do you feel like something right now? But do you know what God has said about you in Christ? that you belong to him, that he has made with you an everlasting covenant, that his steadfast love towards his people will never fail, that he forgives to the uttermost. As far as the east is from the west, he has separated our sins from us, that we have a new name, that we have a new people, that we have a new hope, that we have a new future, that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. Do you know that? Is that your foundation? That is necessary if we're to follow Christ in this. Second, do we understand who our enemies really are? 
Yes, we know the passage. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. And yet we still go after people a lot of the time. Don't we? Many Christians know exactly who our governor is these days, where in previous times we wouldn't. Our enemies are often humans. Jesus was clear on who the enemy was. And those that we don't like, he had compassion on as people who didn't exactly know what they were doing. Do we know who our enemies really are? Or our enemy really is? Third, do we understand our purpose? We are called to suffer unjustly as his people. That's unmistakable there, right? This calling to follow Christ to the cross, there, there's nothing in, what Jesus, in the road that Jesus walked that he deserved. And he said, follow me. And we think in the world's terms, but we don't deserve that. We've done nothing wrong. Why are you bothering us? Why are you picking on us? I'm not a bad person. And all that's given. Granted, and, and let's be honest, it's not always true. We sometimes deserve what we get. But we will suffer unjustly. That's God's calling for us. That's God's purpose for us. We're walking the same path in many respects. We must walk this way. We must face chaos this way. Because this is our calling. It, it, it's part of our testimony, if you will, to be the ones that remain calm in the face of this rather than the ones who respond in kind. And, and lastly, we know that we can entrust ourselves to God. We've got to know that. And it, it's, where, it's where faith is such a challenge because I, I, think, I think we have a, a, a way too comfortable connection between our feelings and our conception of faith. And if we don't feel like it, we struggle with accepting what God has said. And we really, and I'm not saying put your, put your feelings in a box and put them away, but, but what God has said has to direct our feelings and not the other way around. That's part of the perspective change. I don't feel loved by God right now. What does that change in the objective sense of things? Nothing. God's love is unremitting. It's overflowing in such a way that I need never doubt it, and yet I am a weak human being. And I fail to see it. And that changes nothing about what God has declared. Do we know God like that? Do we know those assurances? Do we know that there's nothing to be afraid of? There's no, there's no defense that needs to be made on our account? That, that we can be free to, to stand in the face of this chaos and not respond in kind? Give a different account of ourselves. Exhibit the kind of noble character that Jesus did. Now, I want to say something really important here. That I, I preached this last week and I didn't mention this, but, but this is really important here. This is not silent in every case because that's not what Jesus did. Where did Jesus open his mouth? In defense of others. How dare you tell that woman to go away and come back tomorrow when she needs healing now? He got angry. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? This is my house. God desires to give compassion to this woman. 
and you're withholding it, but you give it to your animal? Who do you think God is? So, so with regards to himself, he did not open his mouth. With regards to others, he was quick to defend. How, how do we learn from that? How, how do we gain that? And, and again, it's not simply the outcome, but how do we think that way? How do we gain that perspective? Because chaos is coming if it's not already here. It's in all sorts of ways. It's not just in the, the opposition, the, the perpetual opposition of those who are against God. It's in the day-to-day life. It's, it's the death of a church member. It's disease. It's a car accident that your kid gets into. It's, it's all sorts of things. And our calling is to stand firm. To not react the same way. To look different. To think different. To give those, us, those around us something to think about when we talk about this God that we belong to. That we call Father. Let's pray. Lord, when you call us to follow your son, you knew what you were asking of us. This is hard. We are, we are not up to it. We, we stumble and fall. We fail. We sin. Left to ourselves, there is no hope in this. And we are just poor facsimiles, if at all, of you, and we feel the shame of that on top of everything else. Lord, we, we recognize, I think, this high calling that you've given us to, to grow and to become like Christ, but we need your help. It's not in us. It's not the way that we see the world. It's not what the world is telling us all around us. It calls us to be something different, to see things different, to actually live by faith. And so I pray, Lord, on our behalf, increase our faith Help us to see, help us to know the truth about not just who you are, but of this relationship that you have bought for us in Christ that is eternal, that will never fail. Of your righteousness, of your justice, of your provision, of your protection, that you will vindicate us to the extent that we don't have to vindicate ourselves. Lord, in a time where there's so many voices saying, fight back, stand for your rights, fight the power, we have Jesus who went quietly. And we don't know what to do with that. So help us to see. Help help us to, to know what Jesus knew, to see what Jesus saw, that we might be more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.